Father, we'll thank you uh, that you have revealed yourself. Father, thank you that you rescued uh, the Israelites from Egypt. And Father, we pray as we look at this uh, incident from all those thousands of years ago. Father, help us to see this morning how it affects our lives, how you have touched our lives, how you have rescued us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Familiarity, so they say, breeds contempt. And that's so often the case, isn't it, with stories that we know really well. Caroline, uh, my wife and I, we we enjoy watching uh, programmes that we have seen loads of times before. There are sitcoms that we sit and watch and we, we can virtually do the scripts. I don't know if you have the same sort of situation. Yet, we watch it with subtitles on at the moment. There's often a lot of noise going on in the background. And uh, it, it sort of takes the fun out of it a little bit, because it sort of tells you what's coming next. But we almost know the scripts uh, to some of the things that we watch. But familiarity can breed contempt. You can forget how good things are. You can forget what's going on when you've seen something a lot of times. And before us this morning is a story that probably most of us will have known for a long time. How the Israelites escaped from the Red Sea uh, and made it through to the other side. And it's a story that's been told many times. So if you're of a certain age, you might remember this one, uh, the Ten Commandments back in 1956. That might be the one that you grew up with. I grew up more with the Prince of Egypt, which came out in 1998. Sort of remembered that with the uh, the soundtrack to that as well. Uh, And if you're uber modern, uh, Exodus, Gods and Kings, uh, 2014. The story just keeps getting retold. It's like every generation seems to have a version of the story, which actually fits quite well if you think about Exodus, because they were supposed to tell the story to every generation and pass it down. But the danger is, with familiarity, that we miss the point of why the story's there. Yes, it's an exciting story with the seas and the armies and the winds and the danger, but we miss what the story is there for. We missed what it's got to do with us. It just sounds like a really fun story. You know, so the ancient Israelites escaped the Egyptian army. Well, that's great. But, you know, the Russians escaped the French army in 1812. Or the Bulgars escaped the Byzantium army in uh, 811. But those things don't impact our lives now, do they? But this one does. God is doing something here as he rescues the Israelites. This isn't just a rescue. And as such, it teaches us things about God and things about ourselves. So we've got four R's this morning uh, to show us what's happening in our passage. The first of which is this. What's happening here is a revelation. Let me read to you again verses 1 to 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and camp in front of Pi-Hitharoth. Uh, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. What we see here is a revelation. A revelation of God. The passage starts with God telling the people to turn around. They're to double back on themselves and make it look like they don't know where they're going. The Lord explains that this is a ruse to trick Pharaoh. Pharaoh will think that they're unwilling to leave the land and go into the wilderness. He'll think they're just sort of walking around in circles from one place to another. But God's plan is not to trap the Israelites... 
but to trap Pharaoh and his army. God promises again to harden Pharaoh's heart. We've seen that all the way through in Exodus. It will be Pharaoh's plan. He comes up with it. Going after the Israelites is what Pharaoh wants to do. But God will fix him in that path. He will literally strengthen his heart to do it. That's literally what that word means there. But the goal is not so much Pharaoh's defeat, but God's glory. God talks about their getting glory over Pharaoh. It's about God revealing himself to the world in all his wonderful power and magnificence. It's done so that the Egyptians shall know, he says, that I am the Lord. Now you'd think that they'd have already got it by now, after ten plagues, after all that we've seen, but apparently not. But they will, and we'll see that they will in this passage. And in one sense, the whole thing from chapter 1 of Exodus up to here has all been about God revealing himself, making himself known. Because of who God is, theology is not guesswork. It's not like, well, you know, I like to think about God like this. Or, well, you know, when it comes to God, your guess is as good as mine. It's not like that. God shows us here what he's like. He's shown us in these events his incredible power. But also his incredible compassion on his people. His incredible justice on those who oppress his people. This has been and continues to be about God making himself known. And it says here it's to do with revealing his glory. Now glory is a tricky word. It's a tough word to translate. It's related to the word heaviness. It's got the idea of weight, of substance. John Piper defines it as God's infinite worth going public. Okay, God's infinite worth going public. The radiance, the shining out of his infinitely worthy and valuable perfections. That's what it's talking about. God here is showing his infinite worth, his incredible power over Pharaoh. And bear in mind, Pharaoh at this point was the most powerful man in the world. There was no power bigger than the Egyptians and no one bigger and more powerful than Pharaoh. And yet God will reveal his sovereign command over history and over Pharaoh. There will be no excuse to doubt God's infinite power and wisdom after this event. This is God going public with his power and majesty. So if you didn't get it from creation in Genesis, you should definitely get it from his rescue here in Exodus. God wants the Egyptians to know, he wants the world to know that he is Lord and there is no other. And that he fights for his people. And eventually in this passage we will get there. So God isn't just rescuing, he's making himself known. He's revealing himself that he might be known. This is a revelation of God's character and God's power. But it just doesn't show us God though. Actually this passage shows us something about our natural response to what God has done. So secondly, a rebellion. Let me read you verses 5 to 9. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let the Israel, let Israel go from serving us? So they made ready his chariot and took his army with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all of the chariots of Egypt and officers with them. 
And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them encamped by the sea, by Pi-Hirioth, in front of Baal-Zephon. Now you might want to say here that Pharaoh's response is unsurprising. Pharaoh yet again changes his mind about letting them go. He's done that several times through the story. Perhaps when the Egyptians started having to do the work for themselves at home, they lost their appetite for a free Israel. You know, where's where's my slave to make the breakfast? They must have lost uh, what was going on. They must have thought, what have we done? In verse 5, they seem to regret letting them go from serving them. Certainly when Pharaoh's spies see the Israelites allegedly wandering aimlessly in the wilderness, it must have seemed like too good an opportunity to pass. He thinks they'll end up trapping themselves in the wilderness. So he makes the decision to go after them. And in verse 8, God locks him into that decision, as he said he would do. He hardens his heart and Pharaoh foolishly thinks that he can now defeat the God of the Israelites. Pharaoh's response to exactly what we is exactly what we'd expect, isn't it, from what we've seen of Pharaoh's delusions. So you might have learned, thought he'd learned something along the way, but seemingly he's not. And there's something saddeningly, saddeningly predictable, yet shocking if you think about it, to the world's response to God's revelation. We sort of know what's going to happen, but it's sad, isn't it, as it happens. More surprising here is the response of the Israelites. Have a look at verses 10 to 12. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. I say it's surprising. Perhaps it shouldn't be surprising given their track record so far. When their brick quota was increased, they didn't exactly respond well to Moses, did they? It's also a telling sign of things to come as they enter the wilderness. But it should be surprising, shouldn't it? God has done everything for them. God has polaxed the Egyptians for them. He's brought them out of slavery without a battle. He's filled their coffers with Egyptian gold. And yet here they think that God is out to get them. Moses gets it in the ear from them, doesn't he? They aim their criticism at Moses. You brought us here to die. We were happy serving the Egyptians. Really? Were they really happy? I think they're seeing things a bit rose-tinted, aren't they? Why did you have to go and mess everything up? Just like Pharaoh at the beginning of Exodus, they're motivated by ungodly fear. And it's shown in the way that they lash out towards Moses. And it's so often true, isn't it, that leaders face the brunt of this kind of thing. I don't want to say leaders are above criticism. We're not. The Bible doesn't say we're not either. Leaders make mistakes and need grace and forgiveness, just like everybody else does. Sometimes leaders abuse their position, and it's right that they face justice. I know that I've made mistakes over the years, and actually folks have been really lovely and gracious with me, and I'm very thankful for that. But here, Moses hasn't done anything wrong. He's done exactly what God told him to do, and he's getting the flack for it. 
Their anger and insecurities about what God is doing are directed at the leader, Moses. And they doubt Moses' God-given leadership and God's amazingly generous goodness. And elsewhere in the Bible, through the mouth of a psalmist, it's referred to here as rebellion. So on the back of your notice sheet, you'll see the Psalm 106, verses 6 and 7. It says this, Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. The psalmist calls this incident here a rebellion. They rebelled by the Red Sea. And the word in Hebrew means a stubborn, sort of high-handed rejection. Sort of sinning with your eyes open and your head held high. And yet, did you notice that the psalmist puts himself in the same category? So in verse 6 he says, both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed adultery, uh, sorry, iniquity. We have done wickedness. So before we judge them too harshly, we need to think, can we be guilty of the same sort of thing? Can we do what the Israelites did by the Red Sea? God demonstrates his love for us again and again and again and again. And yet so often we refuse to believe that he is for us. We don't believe that he could love us, even when he says he does. The slightest thing happens and it's, it's gone out to get us. He never loved me in the first place. When we do that, we're being like the Israelites. It's understandable in, in one sense, because grace is actually really hard to get your head round, and even harder to get your heart round, isn't it? That God would love us, even when we're so loveless and rebellious in our hearts. It's hard to get your head round. But that's what God says. And in the end, how we feel about God's grace is less important than what God says about his grace. If he says he will rescue us, he will rescue us. If he says he is for us, he is for us. However we feel about it, however the circumstances look, God's word is more certain than our feelings or our circumstances. And that's why God's word is the ultimate guide of who God is and how we should respond. But the Israelites aren't listening to what God says. Instead, they're rebelling. But God won't let that get in the way of his plan. And so we also see, thirdly, that this is a rescue. Let me read to you verses 13 and 14. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you will see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Moses here, seemingly out of nowhere, hits the nail on the head. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you, you need only keep silent. In the face of an army on one side and of a sea on the other side, God says, do not fear. Now, I never tire of saying, actually, that that is the most repeated commandment in the Bible, do not fear. You'd think it would be do not kill or do not steal, but it's not, it's do not fear. And so often that's the one we need to hear, isn't it? And this is not some generic, oh, there's no point in panicking, it won't do you any good. 
actually there is good reason for the Israelites not to be afraid. God is with them. God is fighting for them. They will not need to take on the Egyptian army. God will do the fighting. God will do the delivering. It's like that scene in all those action and fantasy films where someone stands alone and says something like, I'm going to take you down. And they always say, yeah, you and whose army? And it's always at that point, isn't it, that someone else comes in, you know, there is an army behind them. Or there's a big tough guy that they haven't seen sort of comes in. Well, who's the guy who comes in at this point? God. God comes in. They have God fighting for them. Not just any God, the God. They cannot lose. They cannot lose. So all they have to do is to stand firm and keep silent. Keep standing and keep quiet. Or stand up and shut up, if you want to hear a different way. In fact, one translation puts the end of the last verse, and you, you keep your mouth shut. Which I suspect, I can't prove it, but I suspect is closer to the original intention. You see, there are traditions that they pass through the sea in total silence. But there'd be no real reason to do that. It's more likely from the context that Moses is telling them that their careless words, if anything, is what's going to get them into trouble. So Jesus himself said in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. It's a reminder that actually they to be careful what they say in the light of all this. God will do it. God will do it all, which is a reminder of God's sovereign provision in salvation. God has done it all. And yet, they're called to step forward, and Moses is called to act. Verses 15 and 16. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. God has made it abundantly clear that he is doing this. And yet he calls for their conscious cooperation. God doesn't zap the sea with a lightning bolt. Moses must hold out his staff before the wind comes and dries it up. He doesn't teleport the Israelites to the other side of the Red Sea. Actually, they have to go forward. They have to walk through it. They must step forward in faith. And boy, I bet that took a bit of faith, walking through the ocean, walking through the sea. Imagine a huge wall of water on each side of you. Like an aquarium held up, not by glass, but by God. God is in control of what's going on. That's abundantly clear. He's told Moses that this is about him getting glory over Pharaoh and his army. And yet, the people must join in. There is God's sovereignty and human responsibility working hand in hand. We stand still. And we see that God does it all. We see the salvation of God. Yet it's also true that we answer the call to step forward in faith. There's no getting to the other side unless we go in faith. And step forward, they do. God sends darkness on the Egyptians and light on the Israelites in verses 19 and 20. How that works, we're not told. But it has something to do with the clouds standing between them. Whether it's light on one side and dark on the other, we're not told. But it was light to the Israelites and darkness to the Egyptians. 
It's an echo of the last plague just before he rescued them, the plague of darkness. But it's also an echo of creation, if you think about it, when God separated the light from the darkness on day one. And that's not the only echo of creation here. Next, God separates the waters in an echo of what he did separating the waters to bring dry land at creation as well. Then, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now the wind of God comes and dries out the sea. That's the same word, wind and spirit, ruach in Hebrew, the same idea. What it's showing us is this is a a miracle that is on the level of creation. This is the level of miracle that God is doing. And in doing so, he's creating a people for himself. It's like a new beginning, a new genesis. And his people pass through on dry ground and begin their new life on the other side. God faithfully rescues them from the Egyptians and the waters of the Red Sea. They don't even get their feet wet. They don't even need to put their wellies on. That's how how complete this rescue, this incredible salvation is accomplished. And God does get glory over Pharaoh. When all his people are through, he commands Moses to hold out his staff over the waters, and the waters come crashing down. God decreates, if you like. He sends it backwards as the waters come back together and destroys Pharaoh and his army. But not before they have acknowledged that this is the Lord's doing. Have a look at verses 24 and 25. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee before Israel. For the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Their wheels are clogged, they're trapped in the middle of the sea, and here right at the last moment they get it. The Lord is fighting for the Israelites. They're doomed. They try to get out but it's too late and the waters come crashing down on them. Not one of them is left. Now it's unlikely that Pharaoh was here but his nation has been defeated. His army has been humiliated by God. Even with 600 plus top of the range chariots, with all his horses, all his men, they couldn't even catch a bunch of runaway slaves. This is one of the reasons these incidents are so hard to square with Egyptian history. I mean, who wants this as their legacy? If you were Pharaoh, you're gonna put this on your tomb? You're gonna write this in your hieroglyphics by your, your grave? This is a rescue of God's people, but a humiliating defeat for Pharaoh. But it's not just those things. Lastly, it's also a right. We'll look right at the end. Verses 30 and 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Sorry, seashore, not seashore. Feelings of proper tongue twister. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This sort of swears off the story at the end. And the next time really we, we meet it in a big way is in the New Testament. And the New Testament deals with this incident in not perhaps the most of the way that we would have understood it. At first glance, this isn't how we would see it normally. The way the New Testament talks about this event is a baptism. Okay? 
So on your notice sheet, you'll see 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verses 1 to 2. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians. He says this. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The cloud and the sea here were a sort of rite of baptism for the Israelites. We can see this in other ways in the New Testament too. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but in the early chapters of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus retraces the steps of the Israelites, so to speak. There's a murder of the Israelite baby boys by the king. There's a journey to and out of Egypt. And then before Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and teaches the law from a mountain, what's in between? It's his baptism. Jesus going through the Jordan in there is in place of the Israelites going through the Red Sea in Exodus. So the Israelites going through the Red Sea is a sort of baptism, according to the New Testament. But how so? Well, a few ways. Firstly, both involve going through water. That might seem fairly obvious, but it's worth stating. On a very basic level, they are similar. Both the clouds and the sea are water. Except in the case of the Israelites, they don't get wet from those things. And water in both cases symbolises death. So you notice in verse 30, it's graphically shown that the waters were the waters of death for the Egyptians. So passing through the waters is in one sense passing through death. So Paul writes in Romans 6 verse 4, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead... Through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Which nicely brings us to the next similarity. Both finish with a new life. Their new life on the other side of uh, from Egypt begins after they pass through the Red Sea. Now there are big debates about the Israelites and where exactly they cross. Was it in the lakes in the north with lots of reeds? Because the Red Sea could mean Sea of Reeds. Or was it further down, because it could mean end sea as well? So was it the end of the Gulf of Suez, where the Suez Canal starts now? Part of the issue was that the shoreline now is not the same as it was 3,000 plus years ago. Parts have silted up, parts have eroded. The places that are mentioned here might be under several feet of sand. Who knows? Wherever it was, though, it was enough to actually uh, get them across to a new place and to destroy the Egyptians. So it wasn't just naturally shallow. I looked for a cartoon this week that I, I used to quite enjoy as a teenager um, from uh, Answers in Genesis, but I couldn't find it. But it's got this boy talking to his father, and he sort of comes up really excited. He's just read the story of this, this story that we've read this morning for the first time. And he says, Father, I, I, this is so exciting. I've just read that the Israelites walked through the sea and that it had parted on the sides. And it was a... And his father said, oh, no, no, no. It was only a really shallow sea. They just walked through a few inches of water. Uh, you know, just two or three inches of water. That's it's not really a miracle. So the boy goes running off, and he comes back to Daddy. Daddy, I've just read the end of the story. And there's another miracle. He said, "What do you mean?" He said, I've "Just read that the whole Egyptian army's drowned in two inches of water." <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be a certain height, hasn't it, for them to get through? But where exactly it was, we don't know. What we do know, though, is that when they were on one side, they were in Egypt. And when they were on the other side, they were not in Egypt. 
On one side, they were under Pharaoh's jurisdiction, and now they're not. He was boss of that land, he is not boss of this new land. And that's important. It would still have defeated the army if God had drowned the Egyptians in the Nile, wouldn't it? If you'd have uh, taken them sort of through there, uh, sort of way down, and then sort of done it through there. But it wouldn't have been the same picture, would it? God wouldn't have rescued them from Egypt in the same way. They would not be out of Pharaoh's control and realm. This victory ends in a new location, a new life for them. And it also ends in a new life for us in that picture of baptism. We raise to new life. And because they're in a new realm, their slavery is over. Their former masters, we read, are laid dead in the water. They're no longer under their control. And it's fascinating that Paul continues on in Romans 6, having talked about baptism, to talk about the new life as one being free from slavery. So Romans 6, 16, further down that passage. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Baptism pictures our new life, free from our old master. We go in one way and we come out another. Perhaps we should try that next time we baptise someone. You know, they'll go in one way and come out the other. Though that would have meant that poor Ethan would have had to swim to the other side of the river. Uh, so I don't think we'll, uh, we'll do that one for that if we do another river one. But it powerfully shows that we're no longer slaves. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer under its control. We no longer live in its realm. Paul's challenge is to live like that. Don't live like you're still on the other side of the Red Sea. You've begun a new life in a new place. Don't live like you still live in the old one. And then the last similarity between the two is they both involve being included in a mediator. Now this is perhaps the trickiest to get our heads around. Paul says that we were back, sorry, uh, yeah, Paul says we were baptized into Moses. And we know as Christians that we are baptized into Christ. The Jews called themselves Moses' disciples. And they had a covenant that was mediated, was sort of go-betweened by, by Moses. We are Christ's disciples with a better covenant, mediated by Christ. We have something so much better. I don't have time to preach the whole of Hebrews uh, this morning. But we have something better. And in our baptism, that's pictured. So what has that got to do with us? Well, familiarity breeds contempt with baptism too. Water baptism is a powerful sign of what happens to someone when they become a believer. And if you've been baptised, you can look back to that sign and remember the aspects that are brought out here. You can remember that you've passed from death to life. You can remember that you've passed from the realm of sin into the realm of the Son. You can remember that you have a new master and that you've been included in Christ and in his covenant. A covenant that promises forgiveness and eternity with God in glory. If you've not been baptised and you're a believer, well, summer's coming. I know it's a bit chilly this morning, but uh, we could sure get a pool outside. Or you can be brave like Ethan and do it in the river. But is that a good way to remember, to, to bring to mind what it is that's happened to us when we became believers? And if you're not a believer here this morning... 
What have you done with the way that God has revealed himself? As we see in our passage this morning. Because God has actually now more fully revealed himself through Jesus Christ. What have you done with that revelation of God? All of us start where the Israelites do, rebelling against God. What we all need is what God has done. A rescue. God has done all that is necessary for us to come. Jesus died to rescue us, and his death provides all that we need. All we need to do is take that step of faith and trust him. Leave Egypt, our life of sin and rebellion against him, and trust in Jesus instead. Now I know some of you will have heard that message many times, but don't let familiarity with Jesus breed contempt. Instead, let it breed commitment to the Lord Jesus who brings us from life to death, from slavery to the other side of the Red Sea. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you that the rescue that he brings is even more incredible than the one that we see here. Father, thank you that he can bring us from life uh, to life from death. Father, thank you that he is our new master and so much better than Sid or Pharaoh or any of our old ones. Help us to trust in him alone, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.